We are finishing up our study on the book of Matthew today. It has been, let's see, this is number 55, 55 weeks in the book of Matthew, just over a year, and we're in the home stretch now. In 2014, I built something, probably one of the things I'm most proud of ever building. I, I dabble in woodworking, and uh, this was probably my toughest project to date. I built something called a hammered dulcimer. Anybody know what a hammered dulcimer is? Okay, I want to show you some pictures. This is not to brag. It's maybe to brag a little. Um, <clears throat> at the end, you'll see why it's not bragging. We'll get there. But this is one of my favorite projects of, or pictures of the hammered dulcimer build. This is the raw wood that I just brought home and I threw on my, my workbench, and those are the blueprints that I'm going to use. And I just love this because it's, it's this, what I think is a very beautiful instrument. Uh, but, and it's just raw, unformed, unshaped situation. And there it is. A couple hunks of wood. There's some, I think that was Spanish cedar. Uh, there's a piece of plywood on the bottom. There's some curly maple and some, I think it was walnut for those of you that care. Most of you don't. <laughs> Tough. Uh, so, and this is what it turned into. You can clap. It's okay. Um, I didn't, wow, this is rough. That, no, please, you don't have to. That's okay. <clears throat> so I didn't make the hammers. You see the little hammers? I, I had a friend from college, turns out he makes hammer dulcimer hammers of all things. And he sent me three, but uh, that, that's the finished product. And my goal was to make this, number one, because I love woodworking and I, I love music. And I wanted to learn to play a hammer dulcimer. It was just I've always loved the instrument. If you knew uh, the music of Rich Mullins, he played a lot of hammered dulcimer in his music. Um, it's like opening up the inside of a piano and striking it with little handheld hammers. In fact, this was sort of a precursor to the piano. It's used in a lot of Appalachian music, kind of folk music. It's got a beautiful sound. This is the hammered dulcimer today. It hangs on the wall. Thank you. It is beautiful. It's also completely useless. It hangs on the wall. It's not completely useless. It's, it's like a nice picture on my wall. It hangs on the wall of my living room above our piano, which sees a lot more use than the hammered dulcimer. It gets in the way of the thermostat, which is unfortunate. <laughs> Didn't plan that well. Uh, it is sorely out of tune because it has not been taken off the wall for quite some time and has not been tuned. It takes about two hours to tune the hammered dulcimer, which is one of the reasons I don't play it very often. Uh, I never really learned to play it. I tried, and, and I probably could a little more. I started with a very hard song and got very frustrated very quick. That's my own fault. Should have begun with hot cross buns like everybody else, but I didn't. <laughs> Here's the thing. Building a, a pretty instrument, a, a conversation piece to hang on the wall, building a beautiful hammered dulcimer was not the point of the project. The point of the project was to build an instrument that would play and to teach myself and to learn to play that instrument. And so as far as I'm concerned, I failed. Because I, I love seeing it. It's hilarious when our dog barks and all the strings ring. It's kind of funny. They just kind of vibrate and it's like, you know, ah. so I think our dog thinks very much of herself when she barks. We have to go over every once in a while, just silence the dulcimer. But it's really 
not good for much. Over the past year or so, we've walked through the gospel of Matthew. We started at the very beginning. We looked at Matthew declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, this promised king who would come and deliver his people. Joseph is told by the angel to give Jesus the name Jesus because that name, or Yeshua, or in the Old Testament it's Joshua, that name literally means the Lord saves. His name literally means salvation. How cool is that? Because he will save his people from their sins. At the very beginning of the gospel, at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly life, we are told, this is your savior, this is your king. He's also called Emmanuel, which means God with us. I love that phrase. I love that concept of Emmanuel, God with us. When we read about Jesus, we are reading about seeing God in the flesh, how God treats people, how God loves people, how God calls people, how God came in the flesh to die on a Roman cross to pay the price for our sin. When we look at Jesus, we're looking at how God loves us. And we see Chapter 4, verse 17, he teaches that the kingdom of God is coming. Chapter 4, verse 19, he starts calling disciples, come follow me. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. They were fishermen. And now he's saying, now you're going to have a new job. You're going to go out and you're going to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come follow me. And I, I love that picture of what it means to be a Christian. You know, think about that. How would you answer that? What does it mean to be a Christian? For some, it's, well, I believe certain things. That's true. For others, it's, I do certain things. Well, that's true too. For others, it's, I show up once, you know, a week on Sunday morning. That's not so true. That's not really what it means to be a Christian. It's part of it. That's not what it means. Ultimately, what it means to be a Christian is to answer the call of Jesus. Come, follow me. Follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower and a learner of Jesus Christ. Go on into Matthew chapter 5. He preaches this beautiful Sermon on the Mount, so ground-shaking, life-changing, because he turns our ideas of the world and what's normal, what's natural. He just turns them upside down. And he starts with that phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The religious leaders at that time would have said, we're not poor in spirit, we're huge in spirit, we're, we're great in obedience, we're great in holiness, we're great in righteousness, the kingdom belongs to us. And Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. You need to understand who you are in and of yourself, your own strength, your own power, it is nothing. And when you understand that and accept that, then you can understand what true greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. He goes on and he teaches in these parables about this coming kingdom. In chapter 13, verses 31 to 32, he shares this parable of the mustard seed. That the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ, he uses many different phrases, that it is entering into, it is breaking into this world, and it is growing and growing and growing. And ultimately, we see throughout the Gospels and throughout Scripture that the kingdom is, is one person getting saved, and then the kingdom has come. And then another person gets saved, and the kingdom grows. And another person gets saved, and the kingdom grows. The kingdom is not changing the political structure of this world. It is changing people's lives for Jesus Christ. And every time that happens, the kingdom grows. 
And it is breaking through into this world, growing in this sinful, messed up world that looks at the church and says, you guys are a bunch of crazy people. And we say, we are not here for ourselves. We are here for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then we get to say, come and see. Come and hear about Jesus Christ. Another ground-shaking thing he taught in Matthew chapter 16, he says that we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And this is so much easier and sweet to read today than it, it meant back then when they would have heard this. To take up your cross was to be condemned to death, a horrible death. And Jesus says to his followers, that's how you need to see yourself. You're you're a person. Your life is not your own. It doesn't belong to you. You need to be willing to lay it down and follow Jesus. We looked at Matthew chapter 20 over and over. In fact, this is one of several where Jesus prepares his disciples and he taught them, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. The Romans are going to arrest me. The religious leaders are going to put me on trial. I'm going to die. And in three days, I'm going to be raised to new life. And over and over, the disciples went, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then as it started to happen, they went, no way. This can't happen. And I just wonder somewhere in the mind of the son of God, if he's going, I told you so. He told them over and over. See, this was his plan. It was his mission. It's why he came. He came to go to the cross. Matthew 27, he suffers horribly for six hours on the cross. And I love the way Matthew says this. He gave up his spirit. The sovereign son of God is not a victim on the cross. Nobody takes his life from him. He went to the cross as a choice of love and mercy and grace for us. And he gave his own life on the cross for the same reason. That by him bearing our punishment, we might be saved and live. But of course... That's not the end of the gospel. Matthew chapter 28, verses 5 and 6. He rises from the dead. He conquers sin and death. Such an amazing time that we celebrate at Easter. We remember, but as Christians, we need to celebrate this each and every day. We serve a risen Savior who has conquered sin and death. He is Lord over everything. And in so many ways, when we look at Christian beliefs, Christian doctrine, you know, Bill's going to be studying the the foundations of Christian uh, uh, doctrine. I'm assuming he's going to look at the cross and resurrection because like this is the pinnacle of Christian doctrine. This is the basic, the foundation, but it's also the high point and everything in between is about the cross and the resurrection. But what's so amazing, that's not where Matthew ends. For Matthew, there's another step in the culmination of the mission of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at this idea that the king has come. Now what? This earth-changing, life-changing, future-changing truth has come into the world. But, But now what? I don't know about you, but I often have that question, or especially when I was first a believer of, I'm saved. Okay, this is amazing. This is great. But now what? What do I do? What does this look like? How am I supposed to live now? And what we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 28 is that we have a mission. The king has come, Jesus Christ. And the now what 
based on his cross and his resurrection, is that we now have a mission to live in his name. Open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start in verses 11 through 15. Because what I see in this passage, this is a passage about a false report that was spreading to kind of explain away the resurrection. And I want to look at this as an example of something we all still face, which is as we live on mission for Jesus Christ, we have to encounter and combat a lot of lies about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It started right from the very beginning. And the disciples impacted or came into uh, contact with these lies and they had to overcome them with the truth. I think Matthew, he writes his gospel a bit later. I think he's writing about these things. He knows that people in the church are hearing these lies and he's saying, wait a minute. This was there from the very beginning because the mission is difficult. Look at verses 11 to 15. He says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. You see the lies from the very beginning? Because it's so hard to accept that the Son of God came, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. That's very difficult to accept. It goes against everything that we accept as normal and natural. And so people are constantly coming up with other ways to explain it away so they don't have to bow their knee at the foot of the cross and say that Jesus is Lord. Think about how we come into contact with some of these challenges today. How many people have you run into that say, oh, Jesus is just a myth. It's not real. It's just another figment of our imagination. It's just a, a fairy tale that some people, crazy people, believe in. Have you ever heard people like that? It's just a myth. It's one of the lies that spreads. Another lie that spreads that people like to hold on to is, well, Jesus was a good teacher. And, you know, I follow some of the teachings of Jesus. He's very helpful and he brings me hope. And, but, but I also follow the, some of the teachings and I've read a little bit about Muhammad and, and Buddha and some of the others. And Jesus is just one among many. And it kind of keeps Jesus in this nice little pretty box that we can take off the shelf when we want to to fulfill our needs, give us ideas. It's almost like a magic eight ball that you shake and say, what should I do? And Jesus says, oh, we'll just do this. Oh, great. And then you put them back on the shelf. Jesus is just a good teacher. But see, the gospel confronts those things. What these soldiers were paid to go out and say is that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, that the disciples came and stole the body. It was a way to explain away the amazing miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is, make no mistake, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that proves the gospel, proves the truth that he is the son of God. Paul goes so far to say is if you don't believe in the resurrection, you should not be a Christian. There is no concept of being a Christian that doesn't accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ because the gospel hinges on the cross and the resurrection. We have to hold on to it. The mission of telling others about Jesus will always meet with opposition. It's hard. 
It was from the very beginning. In fact, as we look in these next two verses, we're going to see that some of his disciples, even though they see the risen Christ, they still have some doubts. And yet, and and we need to hear this today, because I think we all struggle with doubts from time to time, doubts don't stop the mission. It keeps going. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Why? Because they saw him die on the cross. Some of them. Some of them had run away already. It was very public. He died. And make no mistake, the Romans were incredibly good at killing people. They excelled in it. This whole thing that, oh, he just swooned on the cross and then he woke up later. That's garbage. Romans were really good at this. They saw him die. They knew that he died. He had been buried. They knew where he was buried. And there he is in front of them. They had gone all the way in the northern northern part of Israel to Galilee. And Jesus meets them there in the flesh. And they worship him. The Son of God, alive again. But, and here's where I think some of us can identify. But some doubted. Some doubted. Isn't that interesting? How many of you would say, you know, if I could just see a miracle, if I just saw a miracle, I would believe. If Jesus would just appear to me right now, I would believe. Over and over and over and over again in the word of God, we have people to come face to face with something absolutely miraculous that they cannot explain. Here we have his disciples that walked with him, listened to him, ate meals with him. They saw him on the cross. Now they see him risen from the dead. And some of them still are struggling with doubts. Matthew doesn't go into details. What what is it? What, What are these doubts? We don't know. I wonder if for some of them they're saying, is this really Jesus? I mean, come on. That doesn't happen. We saw him die. There's some other guy that kind of looks like him. I wonder if for some of them they're wondering, how is this possible? Is he really alive? Is it just a ghost or something else? How is this possible? We don't know the nature of the doubts. And I kind of like that because I think today we all struggle with many different sorts of doubts. Can he really help me? Can he really save me? I mean, come on, pastor. If you knew my life, you would know, Jesus, he can't save me. I've heard those doubts a lot. Oh, Jesus can't use me. I'm not a good enough Christian. I'm not like those people that are just so holy and righteous. God can't actually use me. Jesus isn't really with me. Jesus' work isn't really alive and at work in my life. Do you hear the doubts? Some doubt it. Now, here's what I want you to watch, okay? Here's this group, and they're gathered around Jesus. And we just heard some are worshiping, some are doubting. And watch how Jesus addresses all of them. He is about to give every single one of them, both the worshipers and the doubters, he says, I've got a mission for you. So those of us that struggle with doubts, we don't get to say, oh, well, the mission is for those that don't have doubt. No, no, the mission is bigger than our doubts. And the gospel is stronger than our doubts. And what we're going to see is that these, this group of people, with great faith, but also with some big doubts, they're going to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and they're going to go out and change 
the world based on what Jesus says next. And here it is. Here's the great now what? Okay, you're a Christian, now what? Here it is. What does it mean to be a Christian? What, what does this look like? Here, here it is. What does the church do? Here it is. You ready? We know this is the great commission. And it's interesting because the gospel of Luke tells us that right after this conversation that he has with the disciples, he ascends up into heaven. But for Matthew, he keeps the spotlight here. He wants the focus here. How are we to live? Look at verses 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What are we supposed to do now? What does it mean to be a Christian? What's next? What's the big so what in our lives after we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? How do we keep from being like my hammered dulcimer? How do we keep from being really good looking Christians that are really good at hanging on a wall of a church or sitting in a chair in a church and looking really good, but being kind of useless? How do we keep from that? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And it starts in verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's coming next is that Jesus is sending them out into the world, right? So this is a group of Jewish people, Jewish guys. There's some women there as well, but they have accepted Jesus as their savior. So they're kind of outcasts from their Jewish roots. The Jewish nation, Israel, is this tiny little kind of ragtag group of society or of of survivors that has been overcome by the Roman Empire now. The Roman Empire is huge. They've conquered many different people groups. And Jesus is sending them out into that situation. These are a bunch of mostly uneducated fishermen. And he's sending them out into the world. But before he gives them the marching orders, he says, I have all authority. I have all authority. Think of the authorities that we face in our world. We have the government, we have culture, puts kind of authority over us, talk, talks about what's normal or natural. Society likes to say this is right, this is wrong. There's all sorts of governing authorities in the world. And yet Jesus stands above and beyond all of them and says, I have all authority. Think of some examples throughout the Gospels of Jesus' authority. He has authority over all of nature. Right, I, I went away on vacation this week, and uh, we did some hiking. I, my knees are killing me. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting old, right? I've heard from many of you, like, getting old's hard. You're right. <laughs> I uh, just wait. So much to look forward to. <laughs> and it's so easy to just say, Jesus, I, I, other people need to serve you. My knees hurt. 
I'm too old. My heart's not strong enough. The hip doesn't work. Somebody else needs to serve you. But think about what we see throughout the Gospels, that Jesus is an authority over nature. He walks on water. He calms the storms. And so Jesus is coming to them saying, yes, you're going to face some difficult situations, but I have all authority. We see Jesus having authority over spiritual beings. Oh, Pastor Dave, you just don't know the people at my work or in my family. Like they're all into the occult and witchcraft or alternative religions. Just this constant spiritually war, spiritual warfare. Jesus has the authority to command legions of angels. We also see that Jesus has the authority to look at demons and go, you go there and get out. He has all authority. We see that Jesus has authority over all of time and all of creation and all of history. He's there at creation. The Bible says that everything was created through him and for him. He's at work throughout history, planning the cross. Throughout his life, from from the birth that we celebrate in Christmas, he is walking step by step to the cross to save us. I love how he tells Pilate, you wouldn't have any authority except what was given to you. Pilate's like, I have authority to put you to death. And Jesus goes, no, you don't. Because Jesus has all authority. Jesus has authority over all the earthly authorities. I see Christians all the time on Facebook. Oh, no, so-and-so is in the White House. So-and-so got in. So-and-so didn't get in. (gasps) What are we going to do? We're going to do the same thing we always do. Follow Jesus. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. The gospel doesn't care who's in the White House. Quit fretting about it. Seriously, brothers and sisters, stop fretting about politics. The Lord is Lord over all. And he has all authority. Mr. President, maybe Mrs. President one day, very tiny little bit of authority. Jesus has all authority. Authority. Jesus even has authority over life and death. We see that on the cross where it says he gave up his spirit. He chose to give his life. He chose to take it up again and rise from the dead. He conquered sin and death on the cross and he offers new life and salvation through the resurrection. Jesus is Lord and has all authority over life and death. Jesus has all authority. That word all rings out in this passage. It's not as obvious in the English translation, but but in the original language, that word all appears again and again. He has all authority. He sends them to all nations to teach all the things that Jesus taught, and Jesus will be with them all the days. All, all, all. And the disciples go, I don't know about this. We come to church this morning. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can really do this. And Jesus is like, I got this. I have all authority over all those things. You can add to the list. Jesus has all authority. There is absolutely no question who is in charge of this mission that Jesus sends us on. The mission doesn't even ultimately depend on us. It depends on Jesus Christ and the truth of his death, burial, and resurrection. Did you know that? People are like, oh, the church is going to fail. The church can't fail because Jesus never fails. And Jesus has all authority. And as we'll see in a moment, he is with us. It's all because of Jesus. 
So Jesus, who has all authority, tells them, and I believe still us today, what we are to do now that we are saved. What's the big what next in being a Christian? And the big what next is that we are to go and make disciples. Look at what it says there. Go. He says, where is it? Then Jesus came to me, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And again, our, our English translations, because grammar structure in Greek works a little bit different, it's, it's kind of hard to see. But there's only one imperative in this verse, one command. It's what an imperative is. There's one command, and it is make disciples. All the other phrases tell us how to do that. Make disciples. That's the command. Make disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to be a disciple that makes disciples? What does that look like? What is a disciple? A disciple is someone first and foremost that is saved by Jesus Christ. You can't be a disciple without being saved. doesn't matter how much you show up to church, how much you sing, how much you participate in a small group, how much offering you throw in the plate. It doesn't matter if you've got the little fish on your bumper or you wear a cross around your neck. The only way to begin being a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be saved by Jesus. To say, I'm a sinner. And what Jesus went through on the cross, that should have been me. But he died in my place. And I'm alive in him because he rose from the dead. And he gives eternal life to all who believes. All who believe. A disciple is saved by Jesus. A disciple is also a follower of Jesus. See, we stop short all too often in in kind of the modern Western church. We're so intent on getting people to pray a prayer. Did you accept Jesus? Great. Write that date down in your Bible. That's your spiritual birthday. And that's awesome. That's just the beginning. We, We focus on being a believer in Jesus Christ. And are we born again? And that's good. But the Bible says that Jesus said, come and follow me. See, a disciple is a follower of Jesus as well. There's no concept in scripture of someone being saved by Jesus who remains exactly the way they are. The gospel changes our lives. And we follow Jesus where he leads and as we'll look in a moment where he sends us. Along with this idea of followers being a learner. See, a disciple in this this culture, this was their educational model, is that you are a follower and a learner. We have an educational model of learning, which is you come and you sit in a classroom or in a church, sanctuary, and you absorb. And you sit there and you go, hmm, do I like that? Do I not? And that's good. Like We should exercise uh, some common sense. But then we just go out and maybe, hopefully, we retain a few things and we take it with us. In their culture, you were a follower learner. You followed your teacher, your rabbi, and you watched how he or she, or well, in this case, he, how he interacted with people. How did he treat someone? Think of the woman at the well. The disciples, as follower learners, would have said, how did he treat her? Why? Why did he do that? They didn't get that through a classroom. They got that by being with Jesus and following him. There's so much that as Christians, there's so much in the Christian life that we're not going to learn until we get up out of the seats and follow Jesus. 
and read the word along the way and go, oh, that's what this means. That's how it applies to my situation and to my life. A disciple is a follower and a learner and a learner who follows. Too often we want to separate those and say, well, I don't really have to learn. I'm just a follower. No. Followers must be learners. Learners must be followers. Finally, a disciple is a disciple maker. Pastor Dave, that's why we hired you. No, it's not. I mean, yes, like that's part of my job is to make disciples. But our mission statement as a church, not not the mission statement for the pastor, but the mission statement for the church is to make and become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. It's not just ours, like we came up with that. That's pretty much straight out of scripture. And even right here, make disciples. That's what Jesus is saying. Disciples who are saved by Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ, are able to point others to Jesus Christ and say, man, I'm falling on my face, I'm stumbling along the way, I have doubts, and I'm struggling. But man, if you want to come with me, I'll just keep on pointing you to Jesus. We've got this image that we have to be picture perfect before we can point others to Jesus Christ. That's where I love reading about the disciples, because man, they were not picture perfect at all. And I can so identify with them. And then he goes on and he says, okay, there's the command, make disciples. And then he says, how? How are we to do this? And the first one is go. We have to go to make disciples. Go. He says, go to all the nations. And yes, you you may have heard some people say, well, that actually means as you are going. And that's true to a point. It's this idea, there's an assumption that you will be going. You will be living your day-to-day lives and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we need to go and get out of our comfort zones. We need to go and get out of our Christian bubbles and go and get out of even our normal culture and even the language. We need to go to our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and overseas. We need to baptize Baptism is this beautiful picture when we're lowered into the water that I am dead in Jesus Christ. Who I am is gone. And then when we're raised back out of the water that I'm a new person in Jesus Christ. It is a public proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that every believer is commanded by our Savior to do. I don't know if you know this, but back here we have a baptismal Right, We fill it up with water, and people get up, and some of them share their testimony, and they they make this beautiful picture of the gospel as they're lowered into the the water and raised to new life. And why? Why are we supposed to baptize people? Because baptism starts with proclaiming the gospel, making sure they understand the gospel, and then it challenges them to proclaim the gospel to others through their baptism. When people are baptized, I've seen unsafe family members go, I don't really get that, but that was powerful. They see and they hear the gospel in somebody that they understand. They may not listen to me, but when they see one of you get baptized, they go, there's something there. Also, frankly, the Bible has no concept of an unbaptized Christian. Don't get me wrong. This doesn't save you. It's, it's, It's a picture Just like my sermon doesn't save me. It's a proclamation of the gospel. This is a picture, a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't save you. 
But when we come public with our faith, and we go through the waters of baptism, we are much like a wedding vow. We are making a statement. This is who I am. I am no longer that person. I've been saved by Jesus Christ. You know, I've heard so many people give reasons for why they can't be baptized. Well, I'm afraid of being up in public. I'm afraid of having water over my nose. It messes up my hair. I've heard it all. And I get it. Some of them are real issues. I get it. There are fears. I get it. Our Savior, the Son of God, went to the cross to die in our place to save us from our sins. And he beckons us to follow him. And part of that following is be baptized. At some point, all of those refusals, all of those excuses fall flat at the foot of the cross. Your baptism might be what somebody else needs to come to know Jesus as their Savior. And it will always be something you look back on and say, I went through the waters of baptism. I need to live my faith and trust in Jesus. Finally, he says to teach, those who are disciples, followers of Jesus, changed by Jesus, we are to teach others to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. We teach by living the gospel. We teach by proclaiming the gospel. We teach by getting together and opening up the word of God and reading it and studying it and applying it to our lives. We teach by holding one another accountable. But listen to me, friends. The call to teach others about Jesus is not limited to pastors or church leaders or Sunday school teachers. You are a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean you have to stand up here and do what I do. Doesn't mean you have to lead a Sunday school group or a small group. It doesn't mean that. It does mean that you need to be able to sit down with someone and say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let's read this passage together and talk about it. And maybe some of you are sitting here going, oh my goodness, this is just impossible. Are you kidding me? Pastor wants us to do all these things. Look at what Jesus ends with. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus began with, or Matthew rather, began with Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. And he ends with, he's with us always. Oh, pastor, I can't go into my place of work. They'd, they'd eat me alive. They don't understand. Jesus is with you. He has all authority. I don't have the words. I don't know how to share the gospel. Jesus is with you and he has all authority. Our culture is turning against us. Have you seen the news and new laws that are being passed? Jesus is with us and he has all authority. I'm a horrible, wretched sinner. I can't possibly be used by God. If you're saved, Jesus is with you and he has all authority. And friends, not for nothing, but the beginning of this mission here in Matthew we get to flip to the end and see the end of it. We know from the book of Revelation how it all ends up. And guess what? Jesus wins. And the mission that we're sitting here today going, I can't do that. The mission is successful. It will never fail because Jesus never fails. As we conclude our study on Matthew, I want you to remember 
Your king has come. He came to save us. He has conquered sin and death, and he has called us onto a mission with him and promised to always be with us. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make us look like really good Christians, to just polish us up and hang us on his wall. He designed us to ring out the note of the gospel in this world so that others would look to Jesus and be saved. We are called to make disciples. Let's get to it. Heavenly Father, as we go out from this place, we are called to follow you, but also to call others to follow you. So often we overcomplicate that. And I pray, Father, that as we follow you together, the gospel would go with us, that it would just leap off of our lips in our conversations, that it would be demonstrated in our hands and our feet and in our lives and our homes and our families, in, in our gatherings as a church, both here in this building and outside this building, that we would make disciples. And Father, I pray for that picture of a church that makes disciples It changes people one life at a time because we are living and teaching and demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that through all of that, you are with us. In your name we pray, amen.